This audio session is taken from the Shofar Bible School first year course. You can register for the full Bible School course by visiting our Shofar online store at www.shofaronlinestore.org. The topic for this session is Jesus the Christ. It is part of module 4, the Christ. Good day, my name is Ross and we're busy with the second module on Jesus Christ. We're busy talking through the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Last week, we discussed the identity of Jesus, that He truly is Son of God, truly man, and truly God, both in one, so that He can be the perfect mediator between man and God. In the next few weeks, we will look at the module on Jesus further in terms of His work, His role as a king, as a priest, as a judge, and as a prophet. Today we're looking at Jesus as the King. We often quote the verse that says that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, but that everyone can trust in God. And it's necessary for us to do this. In another place in Romans chapter 1 verse 17, Paul wrote that we are justified by faith. So what we believe really does matter. We believe that our works are fallible and therefore we are not good enough to say of ourselves, we as fallen man, we cannot consistently do what we ought to. In fact, we cannot even consistently do what we want to do. We don't have the ability to consistently do good. So therefore, we need to trust in someone else to save us, in something else. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He made atonement for our sins. We are saved by faith, trusting in our allegiance to Jesus, trusting in His completed work, trusting in His character and His goodness. To again say, we say that we are saved by faith. Therefore, what we believe about Jesus is paramount, is really, really important. What we believe about is not just His identity, but about His work determines whether we are saved or not saved if we are saved by faith, by trusting Him. Faith, Richard Osmer says, is first of all, correct belief. Cognitively knowing what is right. That's what we're doing in Bible school. We're evaluating what the Bible says and we're looking at what is the ancient faith, what is true faith, what is correct belief. But faith is not just cognitive belief. Faith is also a hard trusting or relying on leaning into Jesus. We know the story of Bowden, the great Bowden, the great um, trapeze act who walked across the, Ni the, the Niagara Falls between Canada and America and uh, earlier in the previous century. And that the man made so much money. He walked for months on end on that tightrope between, um, between Canada and America over those rushing waters. And it's amazing. And at once he asked the audience, after, after having done this for months, he says, how many of you believe that I can carry a man on my shoulders across this great river, go across this great rushing waters? How many of you believe I can do it? And everyone put up their hands and say, yes, we believe. Yes, we know you can. And then he asked the question, who of you will get on my back? <laughs> there was not one believer that day. No one believed. Everyone cognitively realized that he can. No one put their trust in him, except, of course, the man who also became rich of his acts. 
his manager. He got him on his back and for the next few weeks he walked across the Niagara Falls with this man on his back. That is what it means to truly believe. In the early church, in the first century, the word for faith in your notes you will see implies more than cognitive reality and even more than a relying on of, of a heart, trusting with a heart in someone else's action. It actually means allegiance. It actually means to align yourself, to partner with, or to, to, to swear faithfulness to someone, to, to bind yourself in service or in covenant with someone. That's what it means to truly have faith. Um, one of the best ways we know this is because of the word that we use for baptism still today across the church, the Latin word sacramentos. The early church adopted the word sacramentos um, where, to baptize someone, and they actually got it from someone being inducted into the Roman army. When a soldier, a Roman soldier, um, became uh, a member of the Roman army, what he said is the phrase, I will live or die or serve Caesar. And then he would use the phrase saying that this is my oath. Caesar is Lord. <laughs> Beautiful phrase. Caesar is Lord. What he means is Caesar from now on owns me. I make myself a bond servant, a slave to this man to serve him in his army. Whether I live or die, my life belongs to him. And when the early church decided on a phrase to describe baptism, that was the, and we can see why, that was their phrase. They used the word sacramentos, Latin word meaning oath or pledge. And whenever someone was baptized in the early church and still today, this is the phrase that we say. We say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And by saying that, we say by both symbolism and by our mouth that I no longer live for myself. I am dead to myself, but alive to God in Christ Jesus for me to live is Christ to die is going, I give my life in service to Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is the phrase that we find straight throughout the New Testament. The creed of a believer is that Jesus Christ is Lord. What does it mean when we say Jesus Christ is Lord? The word Christ, sometimes we, we <laughs> as young believers, we think is the surname of Jesus. But we know that Joseph nor Mary, their name was not Christ. <laughs> it's the title. It literally means king. It literally means anointed one, one who is anointed or empowered or set aside to serve God. Around the birth of Jesus Christ, there was a great expectation for the, the realization or the, the display of the Christ that would come, the Messiah that would come, the king that would come to save Israel from its, from its both internal corruption and external oppression from its sins and its falling away from Yahweh and from the Roman oppression. There was such an expectation for this great king who would come, who would save Israel, for the man who would be there. And there was such a cry among the people. So in the book of Luke especially, you will see that in the first two chapters, there are three or four references of people who realized that Jesus the baby was the Christ and the announcement that today the king of Israel, the Christ, was born announced first by the angels to the shepherds, that really there is a king coming. Why is this important? Why is this important for us to believe that Jesus, the Christ, is the sovereign ruler of the world? Why is the kingship important? Let me backtrack a little bit. Why is this relevant for us today? During the first few centuries of this common era, in the days of the early church, while the Roman Empire was ruling most of the whole known world, 
the Romans had a had an attitude of assimilating, accepting, tolerating religious practices of all the peoples that they oppressed. It was a common practice. They were quite comfortable with the people that they dominated to continue practicing their religious uh, cults and religious practices, and even to adopt and assimilate some of the things into their, into their Roman culture. It was normal. So there was a great tolerance, except for the Christian faith. And this is a question. Why not the Christian faith? Why did the whole of the Roman army rise up to turn its, itself on those within their walls, on the Christians, the worshippers within the Roman Empire? Why did they stop their expansion and turn their attention inwards for a war among themselves? Why so much violence? Why so much cruelty upon Christians? And it comes back to this oath that the believers made. Whenever a believer came to faith in Christ Jesus, he would go under the water and come up with the water and declare confidently, Jesus Christ is Lord. What they believed is that Jesus Christ is the highest authority that there is. But among the Romans, the creed was always Caesar is Lord. And this was the big conflict. Who has the final authority over the life of a person? The Romans were comfortable to allow worshippers of others' faiths and cults to worship their gods and their divinities, to have their religious practices, as long as the Caesar had the final say on what happens, what this man may or may not do. And that was the big thing. The Christians were killed because they said, Jesus Christ has the final authority. Jesus Christ is the real king. I'm just going to mention this. I want to encourage some of you to read this. A great book by N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, is How God Became King, is a great summary of the Bible as a whole, showing how the Gospels portray the story of how God again became the righteous king, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. The reason why Jesus was born was so that he, as a man, sinless man, could rightfully take up the throne on this earth and on the universe. That which Adam had, which he cast away because of sin, Jesus Christ came again as the second Adam to take authority. He is the true Christ, the long-awaited savior of the world, the righteous king who would rule not just only over Israel, but over the whole world. And this is why Caesar had a problem with Christians, because Caesar wanted all the power abusively but Christians said, no, Jesus Christ has rule over my life. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's amazing. Today, we don't, monarchies don't translate well to us. Uh, there are still 23 or 26 monarchies in the world today. Um, kings, queens, emperors, mostly small countries, mostly token monarchies, uh, ruling over 64 countries, actually, in the world. But for most of our world, we don't do well with monarchies. We don't do well with kings. We don't do well with giving authority, absolute power, to one man just because of his, his legacy, his inheritance, what he was born into. We don't do well with giving all authority to an external person. The question is, do we do really do well with the opposite of taking all authority for myself? Individualism in our world is the, the primary philosophy. I am a man. I will do it my way. I think... Frank Sinatra's song, 
sums up <laughs> all of our world philosophy at the moment. I will do it my way. Don't tell me what to do. I will do it my way. We love holding on to absolute power for ourselves. However, as C.S. Lewis says, that has not served us well either. <laughs> so C.S. Lewis defines the problem with individualism this way. He says it's a problem. It's impossible for us to pursue happiness passionately and to pursue goodness equally passionately. It's not possible because our internal humanity, it's not possible for us to pursue the goodness of other people and my own happiness simultaneously because I will always opt for personal happiness. Greed, lust, perversion will always win. My internal nature will always serve myself. Selfishness is the big problem. Self-serving is the pro big problem. And therefore, Lewis in mere Christianity says the invitation is the impossible quest to give yourself to Christ, to give the fullness of my right to Christ, to declare that Jesus Christ indeed is Lord, to allow him to reign and to reign eternally over me. Um, Scott McKnight, you will see the, the reference to the book um, in, in your notes. Scott McKnight, a great New Testament kingdom philosopher, kingdom theologian, uh, wrote this book um, uh, summarizing kings and kingdoms, the big net meta-narrative, stating that the, the big story, the meta-narrative, the big story of the Bible is this, that it starts with, with how God was king and assigned delegated responsibility to Adam. But from Adam, straight throughout to the judges, and the end of judges is really bad, it shows how man consistently rejected the reign of God, consistently. And it shows the great, great tragedy, the suffering of humanity, of Israel as a people and as the whole of the world because of the rejection of the good rule of God. And man cried out saying, we want a plan B. We want a king. And eventually Samuel gave in on the Lord's, on the Lord's permission and they appointed King Saul. And from the very beginning of be giving full authority to mankind to the point where Jesus steps on the throne, plan B failed miserably. It shows the tyranny of absolute power given to a fallen man. It shows how even when good kings were reigning, King David and King Uzziah and King Josiah, even when good kings were reigning, it shows the suffering of people because of bad choices and bad immoral choices when a king makes wrong decisions. It shows the tyranny, the pain. But then... God in his mercy said, let's have this. Let's have a man rule who is God, who will again be the second Adam, taking authority of the earth, receiving authority from, from God to reign in goodness. And plan B revised, he says, is how Jesus Christ came on the earth, reconstituted Israel for himself, chose 12 apostles, we'll look at that again next week, reconstituted a nation for himself and ruled with goodness. Absolute authority, but rule like what we said last week, Daniel Migliori's quote, the nature of God, the great king, who is always self-giving, other-regarding, community-forming, loving in nature, goodness, right? And how God, and then the prophets obviously in the Old Testament and the New Testament says that because of this great reign of this great king, it prophesies and it sees how the nations will come to him. Other nations, because of his glory, because of his goodness, and they will submit themselves to this great king. This is the story of the earth, the story of God's new created earth with him being the king. 
Let's look at a text in the Bible, and we'll look at the epistle that Paul wrote to the Colossian church with a great picture of the reign of this great king, Jesus, the true ruler. And we'll read from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 onwards. Take 10 minutes to reflect on and discuss this session's key Bible passage together with others in your class. If you are watching on your own, take a few minutes to reflect on the key Bible passage by yourself. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. Speaking about Jesus Christ, he said, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in the heaven and are in the earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is above all things and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in the heaven, having made peace through the blood of this cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in his body of his flesh through death to represent you holy, blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Having listened to the text and having thought through some of the comments Paul makes on Christ's rule, he uses the word preeminence quite a lot. Preeminence simply means the, the top one, the one who has all authority, the one who is first in authority, the one who is Consider it first when it comes to options or choices. That's what it means in practice. So having looked at the text, you'll notice that Paul writes a lot about Christ's rule in this great hymn that he sings here. The first answer that he gives is, what is the nature of Christ's great rule? Why can he rule? Why does he have preeminence? So you'll notice that he, that he mentions five things. And maybe you can look at the text with me. First of all, he mentions that Christ himself has preeminence because he is the image of the invisible God. That means he represents the nature of God. He himself is God manifest. That's what the text says. He may rule. Why can he rule? Because he is God himself. Hebrews says it's beautiful. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He says that he has the very great, the great reflection of his glory and secondly the exact imprint of his character. So this is what Paul says the same here, that Christ may rule because he, has the, he is the image of the invisible God. He has that authority. Secondly, he says, why is Christ the king? Why does he have all authority? Secondly, you'll notice that he says that everything was created by him. Things in heaven, things on earth, thrones, principalities, everything was created by him and for him. And without him, nothing exists. It was created for him. He has the right to rule because he created. He has the right to rule over me and you because he created us to serve him. Thirdly, he says that Christ not only rules over it, but he's active in his, in his providential care. He sustains all things, the Bible says. Everything is sustained by him, is cared for by him. He's the one who watches over, provides for. Psalm 107 says so beautiful. It says, 
is he satisfies the desire of every living thing. It's beautiful. He satisfies everything. Fourthly, he says that not only does he bear the image of God, but in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. He is the triune God. Christ is God. God himself dwells in all his fullness in God, and therefore he has preeminence. He may rule. He may rule with power. And then lastly, Paul writes by saying that he is the first fruit, the firstborn of all creation. That means that everything that is good, everything that is recreated, everything that is reconstituted in his great, after his resurrection comes from him. He is the source of everything that is good in this creation. And therefore he says, you may rule. You have authority over that. But this text, Colossians 1, Paul doesn't only say why Christ rules in preeminence, why may he may, but how he does. And this is beautiful for us. First of all, he writes that Christ unites everything in him. His reign is not a reign that divides. It's not a reign that separates. It's not a reign that causes segregation or classism or anything like that. If you think about it, every single nation in the past, every great nation always elevates one culture, one race, or one class over the other. But it says that Christ unites all things. That's one of the reasons why the Romans hated Christians is because it allows, it includes diversity and celebrates differences. So Christ is that one. He unites all things. He uses his reign to reconcile, to unite all things in himself. It says that he rules over his ecclesia, his church, his elect ones. How does he do it? He reigns through his church. Christ's reign, his authority comes through those that he saves, that he remakes, in whom he dwells, that he gives authority to bring his kingdom on earth. He's Ecclesia. He's called out ones who announces and witnesses the reign of Christ in this world. And then thirdly, he says that Christ rules um, through peace, having made peace, reconciling man to man, reconciling man to God. Christ reigns through peace, taking away enmity, taking away differences, taking away hostility, taking away conflict between us and God and between man and man. Christ reigns his reign is manifest in peace, righteousness, peace, joy. And the last one, the beautiful one here, how does Christ reign? Christ reigns through his blood, the Bible says, um, making us holy. And this is extremely powerful, what Paul says. Paul says Christ's reign is not just external, but his reign comes through an internal transformation so that we will to do what God wants us to do. And another place in Ephesians, Paul says um, that, he, that he reigns through, through giving us the desire and the ability to fulfill his will. His kingdom comes inside. We always say kingdom in, kingdom out. He comes by, by changing our hearts so that we want what he wants. That's what we said last week when we started with the module in the reign of Christ. That Christ wants to transform our hearts, that we conform to the image of his son and therefore does what he will. This text is also very good for us to, to teach us a principle, an interpretive principle, a great hermeneutic principle, which we call the Christological principle. And you'll notice a few things here. First of all, the Christological principle helps us to interpret the Bible as a whole, consistently, first of all, by acknowledging that all of the Old Testament pointed to the coming of the Messiah, to the reign of God, the kingdom of God, Christ's reign, Christ's reign. It's a Christological principle that Jesus Christ is king, that God becomes king. So everything in the Old Testament, 
is made clear from the person of Jesus Christ, it points to him. It doesn't say everything is of him, but everything points to him. Secondly, in the New Testament, every single text in the New Testament unpacks something of the nature or the work of Christ in society. It's either ethics or it is morally or explains the work of Jesus Christ himself. So the whole of the New Testament, it's easy for us to keep Christ in mind when reading it because it is about him, his kingdom and his work in the world. Thirdly, it helps us also throughout the Bible to, to read the difficult or the obscure texts because the Christological principle helps us understand that that the fullness of God dwells in Christ, that God's nature is known in Christ. So whenever a text is unclear, we can look at the life and the person of Jesus Christ and understand that text in the light of who he is. What is God, what is God like? What does God want for the world? And if, we, if there are more than one interpretation in a text that is obscure, if we don't really understand it, we look at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We take this text to him and say, how is this text understandable in who Jesus is and what he wants in the world? And that helps us clarify. A fourth point we should just make known as well. Not, you can take this principle too far. So this is one of the principles of hermeneutics. You can obviously look at the Bible and do funny things with him because not every verse in the Bible is about Jesus. It just means as a whole, the nature and the role and the work of Christ makes clear what obscure things point to in the Bible. So in conclusion, today we looked at Jesus Christ as Lord, his first functional role in the world. Jesus Christ means that Jesus is King, that he's the anointed, he's the promised, he's the long-awaited Savior that brings the proper and the good reign of God on the earth to reconcile all things to himself. And what the early church announced at their baptism, we have it at our heart and our faith as well that Jesus has the right, because of he is the creator and sustainer of all things, because the fullness of God dwells in him, that he may and that he should rule in my life, but also through my life. And that we as Christians subject ourselves to him to serve his kingdom, to announce it to the world, to witness what does God's kingdom look like in all goodness, kindness, meekness, justice, and peace, but also to bring it through our activity in liberating those who are oppressed and serving those who are downcast. Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you. Take 15 minutes to reflect on and discuss the following points together with others in the class. If you are watching on your own, take a few minutes to reflect on the points by yourself. You can find the discussion points in your Bible school handbook. Look out for the Living the Word sections in each session.